I was trying. Don't get me wrong. What, what, what about when this one? What about when this one man was around? Like I said, I was trying. <coughs> they had promoters that didn't bring them to my side and wouldn't allow me to come to this side unless it was on his turn. Chris, would you have been interested? <laughs> Before we get to that, <laughs> <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> see. <laughs> You uh, can't define me. I define my work as a father. I'm many things, you know. I'm many things. Yeah, I'm a convicted rapist. I'm 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 a I'm a hellraiser. I'm a father, a loving father. I'm a I'm a, you know I'm a semi good husband. You know what I mean? What? You know, I'm just a man out here trying to enjoy. My, I was born poor. I ain't never had nothing. Man. I don't know how to act, right? But the real thing is, I'm just I'm just here to be me. I don't care what you think. As always, guys, welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we pay our respects to the Queen, but we don't postpone. This train keeps on chugging along. You know, we we will always honour and respect those who who spent their life sacrificing in service of this country, whether it's the military, whether it's the Queen. We tip our hat off because at the end of the day, these are large parts of the country in which we live. Now, does that mean that we all have the same relationship with the Queen? Absolutely not. It's a very complex thing. There are people in this country who lived through colonial atrocities. There's no debate about that. But we also have to understand that within this country, the collective outpouring of grief should show that the Queen meant something to the vast majority of people. And so, you know, you have to, you have to tip your hat and pay respect. So hopefully, you know, we, we can do that by keeping calm and carrying on as you know the old adage goes the purpose of this episode today is the q a so not much happened in the world of boxing to be honest um decent mma card you know happy for nate diaz as always but there was nothing there for us to talk about the the main event saturday was cancelled and so yeah a quick q a well i say quick i'm going to see where i get to after 30 minutes and if I need to do a part two I'll do a part two I don't really want to give you guys this overly long episode on a Monday so try and keep it short sharp and interesting so what I'm going to do is and no disrespect guys I'm going to have to paraphrase some of these questions for one really practical reason now I'm going to try to do this in one sitting um, keep my concentration levels for as long as I can but that means that I don't want to necessarily have to squint at the screen to read a question so I've sort of abbreviated them so I can just pick them up and read them as I go. Um, so we're going to open up with, first question is from Daryl Sensei Daz. And it sort of feeds onto a story I shared about applying to be the CEO of Australia Boxing. And it wasn't successful, but it wasn't unsuccessful. It, it mainly collapsed over money. And in the end, they went. They ended up recruiting the guy from Melbourne Cricket, which sort of showed me they weren't looking for a boxing person, they're looking more for an administrator, so maybe I dodged a bullet in that sense. But he asks, to summarise the question, he says, is there anything that the Australian system does that GB Boxing could learn from? And the simple answer is no, and I'll explain why. The EIS model is basically based on 
the AIS model. So the Australian Institute of Sport was generally seen as the gold standard, especially in the run-up to the 2000 Olympics. So the Australians won a, a hat full of medals. We remember Cathy Freeman's iconic 400-meter win in all of that. And if you remember around that time, there was a massive discussion. How are the Australians so able to deliver champions? And we were delivering guys who, who could barely jump into the pit, right, in terms of long jump, triple jump. I mean, guys weren't even making it to the sand. We weren't very good. There were some guys who were decent. You had Stephen Smith, Dalton Miller back in the day, but we couldn't, and to an extent we still can't now, but we couldn't produce a conveyor belt of champions. And it was when we then started to replicate the Australian model. So we, we already took the Australian model on board, and you saw a lot of that in Sheffield, and it was this idea of, centralizing talent, centralizing elite coaching, and coordinating everything centrally. And that's why you've got Sheffield the way you have, because it's based on that model. Now, what goes into Sheffield is based on, on two broad paradigms. One is the kind of Russian-Cuban model, which is, you know, early talent identification, and then you just filter them down till you get to the elite. And then the second one is the American model of sort of trying to coach skills intensively in that sense. So we've had a lot of that. A lot of this stuff has already gone in. We've, we've stolen ideas, and it's almost been to the detriment of Australian sport because now Australian sport's like, well, we don't have another trick. Our trick was centralize everything, throw loads of money at it, and everyone's done that, we're not as special as we used to be. Because if you look at that Australia squad for the Commonwealth Games, no one really remembers the male boxers, right? But we remember their female boxers, Kay Scott, Katie Parker, Katie, yeah, Caitlin Parker, etc., etc. All talented, all good athletes, great physical specimen. And if they were British, they'd be signed up to contracts immediately, if not sooner. Because you know, you're dealing with really good raw materials. But they're not, they're elite athletes, but not elite in terms of skill and technique. Like their technique's quite leaky. And that's the problem with Australia. It's a relatively small talent pool for trainers and for fighters. And it's hard to travel around to learn because it's really expensive because you've got to fly. Essentially, you've got to fly to Europe or America. And that makes boxing a very expensive pursuit. So I think... We've got it right here because we've taken the best of everything. But what we haven't got right is high-quality coaching. We haven't figured out how to deliver high-quality coaching because we haven't moved our thinking of boxing on. You know, at grassroots level, it's still very, very basic. It's not where it needs to be. And we don't tend to share ideas a lot. As coaches, we, we're paranoid. We think we, what we have is a secret source, when in truth it's not. So if you ask me to summarize, from an infrastructure perspective, I think we're ahead. I think we're also ahead from a funding perspective. And logistically, we're ahead simply because we have access to so many more countries within a two, three-hour flight than they do. So I think Australia are now looking to someone else for some ideas. And that, I guess that's why they cast the net far and wide in terms of how can they find a step change in performance? So that, that's how I'll summarize it. So next we're going to go to Tony Wilson. Um, I don't know if this was a question or a statement, but I'm going to interpret it as a question. So Tony Wilson is Ben Whittaker's dad. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give out his, his Insta handle so you guys can give him stick. But yeah, lovely man. Um, clearly a smart man when it comes to boxing because you know, his son's career has gone swimmingly so far. So, you know, massive tip of the slipper to him. But the question is around why was boxing postponed? Whereas you could still watch rugby, you could still go to horse racing, the cricket still happened. Is it a class thing? Uh, potentially. Uh, I think those sorts of guys, their chairmen, their leaders are part of the establishment, right? So they, they will know what the done thing is. And they said, well, we can carry on. So they did carry on. It's also the fact that those are very small footprint sports. So not, not as much as people don't want to admit it, more people would have watched Clarissa Shields fight Savannah Marshall than would have watched Leicester play against Exeter. Simple fact. Or Gloucester versus, who did Gloucester play on Sunday? Wasps. More people would have watched the boxing than would have watched the rugby. Probably the same for the cricket. So is it that, that the sports that are generally considered to be working class have a larger viewership? That might be the issue. And do people say, well, we don't want to be a distraction at this time? I can kind of understand that. But I'm of the view that you carry on, right? On the day of the funeral, understand things being shut down. Right? I, I, at that point, I fully understand. But prior to that, I think everyone was just shucking and jiving and people were just trying to prove that they could be more sympathetic than the other. And so we've got to have this conversation of what does happen in the event of a monarch passing. I think things should carry on. What we've learned over the last two years is when this country stops, it's never good news. Yeah? And then it takes a long time for, for things to restart and momentum to rebuild. So I, I prefer things moving on. I understand that other people will disagree with that. You know, opinions are like assholes, as they say. But that's, that would be my take. I think the sports that didn't go ahead just have a larger footprint and have the opportunity to become a larger distraction than maybe cricket, rugby, horse racing, and golf would. So next question is from Des, um, East London and Essex's greatest ever property developer. Um, yeah, and probably one of the most astute minds when it comes to boxing. And it's a long question, so I'm going to summarize it. In the 70s, the heavyweights carried boxing, right? And it's known as the golden era. In the 80s, we had the, the four kings, right? So we had Duran, Leonard, Hagler, and Hearns. And then it seems to stop, right? And there's nothing in the 90s, despite having Hopkins, Roy Jones Jr., James Toney, and Mike McCallum, in fact, throw Montel Griffin in there as well, all in and around the same weight. And we, we don't seem to have the same affection for them. We don't call that a Four Kings type era. And then there's effectively nothing until sort of like the, the Mayweather era, where he then started to build his myth in the mid to late 2000s. And so the question is, why, why, why do the 90s feel like such a, such a, a wasted opportunity? I think I want to call it that. I would have called it wasteland, but no, more of a wasted opportunity. And why, why, isn't, there, why isn't there that definitive era? And I, I, have, I have spent most of the morning trying to reflect on this. So if we go back to the 60s, 
you know, Rocky Marciano's retired, the guys like Archie Mourner, everyone's old now, right? And Muhammad Ali steps in fresh off his Olympic gold medal, and he becomes that visible face, right? Wins the world, world title against Liston, and then it's the Muhammad Ali era, right? It's the Muhammad Ali era till 1967. Then it goes dark again because there's no Muhammad Ali. It's Joe Frazier, um, Jerry Quarry, Mike Quarry, Oscar Bonavera, those sorts of guys are around. It picks up again in 1970 when Muhammad Ali starts training again. And then obviously fights Frazier and loses in the 70s. But that's the spark for the heavyweight division to kick into life. You know, Frazier's got the belt, Ali's chasing him, George Foreman shows up and starts doing his thing. So there's a whole decade from like 1971 to 1977 with Ali's, was it 77 or 78 where Ali won the title for the third time, where the heavyweights dominated. And then it goes dark again when Larry Holmes becomes champion. Because it's like, well, there were no stars in this era. And that's when Sugar Ray Leonard, fresh off his Olympic gold medal win, um, Roberto Duran working his way up the weights, Marvin Hagler in his seemingly endless quest for justice in a middleweight title, and Tommy Hearns tearing it up in the amateurs. So they all sort of come together round about the same time. Not that they're the same age, but they're so close in weight by 1980. These are the fights people want to see. It's not a big leap for them to move up or to move down. And it's not like all of them, apart from Duran, were small guys. So you had the the four kings from 80 to 87, right? And that's when you had Marvin Hagler against Sugar Ray Leonard. What merged with that and took it on another level was Mike Tyson's development. And he brought the heavyweight division back with his road to undisputed. Right? So now you're looking at Mike Tyson and you know that there's a guy in the background called Evander Holyfield that he's got a history with. And you know that there's a guy winning the Olympic gold medal called Lennox Lewis that he's got a history with. And they're all of a similar generation. This is what's meant to take us into the 90s. Mike Tyson ends up getting locked up. And now there's no gap. So then you look at, okay, if you want to look at the guys in and around middleweight at that time, Mike McCullum, Michael Nunn, James Tony, Roy Jones Jr., Hopkins is coming through, and I've probably missed a few. I'm not sure if Virgil Hill counts at this point, but there's a, there are a number of talented guys. But the problem was they fought each other so early. So by 1994, Roy Jones has beaten Hopkins and he's beaten James Tony, convincingly, to the point where you don't need to see the rematch. So in the 90s, Hopkins is building back up till about 97 when you start to see him fight guys like Glenn Johnson. James Tony didn't seem to recover from that Roy Jones loss. And then I think he lost to, he lost to Monty Griffin. In fact, he lost to Monty Griffin twice in his career. Um, McCullum had lost to Tony. Some were controversial. He lost to him a couple of times as a controversial draw. Um, Michael Nunn got sparked out by James Tony, and that was kind of the end of him at that level. Um, could someone like Terrible Terry Norris have stepped up? Yes, but he turned out to be fragile too. So there, were, there was all this talent in the 90s, but it never... It wasn't well matched. On reflection, and we can say this now, hindsight's 2020. you you'd have probably left 
Jones, Tony and Hopkins to find their own way till the mid-90s. Then you start to, to cash out on those fights. Because it just seemed to happen so early that people didn't have an interest subsequent to that. And I guess that's what killed the 90s. But then if you look at the tail end of the 90s, because deep down, let's admit, people were waiting for Mike to come out. Because everyone's like, okay, this is what's happening in the heavyweight division at the moment. Lennox is now ready. Riddick Bowe's here. Evander's here. Ray Mercer's here. Um, even at the time, guys like Michael Mora. Everyone's here. George Foreman's doing his thing still. Get Mike into the mix. Let's see what Mike can do here. Everyone's going to make money. Um, I think Holyfield dealt with Mike so decisively and so quickly that that money dissipated. And so we never had that era in the 90s just because poor career management and also partly some of the guys weren't as good as we thought they were. They definitely weren't as disciplined. So I think that's the real reason. Um, career mismanagement and then actually these fighters not being disciplined enough themselves. But I guess it's a lesson we can all learn as boxing fans. Right? We, we look back at things with rose-tinted glasses and we assume that the heavyweight era of the 70s was this grand design that was you know, set up with the purpose of entertaining the fans and giving them memorable moments. We feel the same way about the Four Kings. Like These guys just gave us fan-friendly fights all the time. We need to start looking at some of these as just accidents. <laughs> you know, these are just accidents. Things just happened. Like you know, The Four Kings, seven years. Four guys fighting each other. It took seven years. Um, Ali... Frazier Foreman, four years, four and a bit years, really? I know that Foreman and Frazier fought subsequent to that, and you know, so you can say five years. That's a five-year window. That's relatively quick. And then if we look at sort of Mayweather-Pacquiao, probably about seven years as well, seven, eight years. So the key thing, you know, you know, in all honesty, to make these things great, these fights have to happen at the right time, but they have to happen in a short space of time. When, when everyone's hit that maturation point where they're, they're ready to be elite, the fights have to happen relatively quickly. Dragging things out seems to, to water down the legacy. And that's what I'd say in terms of why we've never been able to, to replicate that kind of four kings feel in recent memory. So Robbie underscore FFM asks, who's the greatest African boxer in history? Now, the easy answer for people to say that is Azuma Nelson, um, two-weight world champion, had a three-year title reign at featherweight, I think, in the mid-'80s. But I, I always think it's Dick Tiger. Uh, Dick Tiger, Nigerian-born, so he qualifies. Um, he was twice undisputed middleweight champion. You know me and my classic weights, so I love that. And he was also heavyweight champion, defeated Jose Torres, I think, and only lost the belt to Bob Foster. And at light heavyweight, most people were losing to Bob Foster. Uh, I remember he, he downed Dick Tiger with a left hook. Punch probably could have killed him. But that was Bob Foster at his peak. He would have been in what, his mid to late 20s at that point, but you know, Dick Tiger was a bit older at that point when he fought him. But I think if you, if you were a light heavyweight champion in that era... That's an, that's an impressive one for me. And then also to be undisputed middleweight champion twice. Just for those accolades, I think he, he nudges ahead of Azuma Nelson. But Azuma Nelson's got that recency bias in that we've got people alive now that can talk about fighting 
against Azuma and Arsenal, like Barry McGuigan and so forth. I think Jim McDonald fought him as well uh, in the late 80s. So I think that's the thing. But no, on achievements, I think it's got to be Dick Tiger in an era where it was harder to win a world title. Uh, question from Fran. Let me paraphrase this. I think I've talked on numerous occasions about the benefit British boxers have of going to America across all dimensions, just for fresh stimuli, a new culture, new ways of working, new things you can learn, just for broadening out your boxing education. So she asked the question, is there value in doing that within the UK? Um, this is interesting because it depends on who you're going to work with. So I don't think there's anything geographically in the UK that would be unique. Apart from, let's say you move from London to Sheffield, every one of your runs is on a hill. Like most people in London, the runs are relatively flat. Um, anyone from Sheffield will know this. And I, I found this out to my cost. So I used to run from, from my place down into town and back when I was a student. And it was easy, right? When you run out, it's easy because it's downhill. But people think, oh, it's a, that's also hard because you're slowing yourself down. So actually, it's, it's, it's equally taxing going downhill as it is going uphill because they both represent extremes. But literally, running, running from town along West Street, you're fine. And then you start to get to, I think it was Harper Road that takes you up towards the Springvale pub and all the way up into Walkley. And that's all uphill. That's, a, that's two and a half miles just uphill. And you don't get that in London. And I think just from a, a grit perspective, most northern boxers are used to that. It's the same in Leeds. You know, it's hills everywhere. So there's that. I think there's the more reductionist approach in Leeds. So you don't get so many gimmicks amongst trainers in Leeds. It's, it's solid fundamentals. It's real basic stuff. And so there's a, a value in just rediscovering the basics and how much you can actually do with the basics. And, and just that general toughness of being in an environment where people want to show you that the North is different, the North is tougher. So I think there's, there's some value, but you want to make sure you're hooked up with real good boxing minds. You know, people are right up north, the guys like Richard Towers, you know, Crawford Ashley seems to know his stuff. Joe G goes without saying. Um, even guys like Peter Fury. Those are, the, those are the sorts of guys, if you're going up there to be around that sort of old school mentality, then you'll benefit exponentially. You know, a lot of those guys we see up north winning British titles are massive overachievers. And it's just down to the, the simplicity and actually just the, the tough environment geographically that you have up north. Next question, Colin Middlemass. Um, you know, sports agent Su Supreme, I think we'll describe him as today. And he asked a very good question. How many bouts do I think people should have before they turn pro? Now, I'd love to just give you a number, but I think context is key here. What I care about is how many tournament bouts have you had? So you can have a kid with 50 bouts. If eight of those are tournament bouts, that tells me something. That tells me he gets knocked out early a lot in terms of tournaments, not in the ring, but he doesn't go far in tournaments. If there's another lad with 50 bouts and he's telling me that like 25 of them are tournament bouts, I'm like, this guy goes deep into tournaments, which means he's good. Yeah, he's proving himself. 
So all of these things are important. And that's why when you hear people talk about amateur backgrounds, you, you talk about the competitions they've been in, the things they've won, because that's what's important. But if you were looking to sign someone, you want to see those numbers. So if a kid's got 80 bouts and only 10 of them are tournament bouts, how good is he really? Whereas if the kid's got 80 bouts and over 50% of those are tournament bouts, you're like, well, he learned his trade quick and he went straight into competing and did well. So all of these things are important when you look at those numbers. But broadly speaking, I worry about people who turn pro with less than 30 bouts. Because my question is always the same one. Where are you going to make your mistakes? And you're going to make mistakes. You're going to be in a situation where a weight cut doesn't go right. You're going to be in a situation where you forget your wraps. You're going to be in a situation where you do this, where you do that. It's better to do those things in the amateurs than the pros. Because you won't sustain reputation damage. And you can quickly bounce back. If I had my way, there'd be a 50-bout minimum to turn pro. But the problem with that is you give people an incentive to take 50 knockovers. So I think you've got to look at it. Once you pass a certain threshold, then you've got to look at the quality of bouts. But I think 40 to 50, um, with at least 40% of those being tournament bouts, and you're nailed on. Anything that slides down from that, I mean, as I say, caveat emptor and buyer beware. But I think any, oh, 40 to 50, I think. Because by then you should have learned how to box. And you should understand how to compete. You should understand how to be disciplined. And you should also know your body. You, the real risk is it takes so long to get to 40 bouts now. You know, you know, I've, I've often quoted the example of Martin McDonough fighting 22 times in one season. I don't think you can do that anymore because it's so hard to, to get on the shows. You know, the expense involved in putting shows on is prohibitive. But that's what I'd say. About about 40 to 50, with a good proportion of those being tournament and competition bouts. So our next question comes all the way from Dublin, with Ireland's favourite family man, John Mulhall, asking, <laughs> how much juice do I think Tyson Fury takes in his cycle? Um, okay. Problem is, I'm probably going to have to bump into any one of the Furies in, in the next 12 months or so. So I, I'm going to swerve that precise question. But there's a valid question within that, which is, what are people taking and why? And I think I did the episode, two episodes with Larry, where we kind of do that. So here's, here's an abbreviated version of this. When you see guys like Ronnie Coleman walking around at 20 stone, at 4% body fat. I think actually, no, at his heaviest, Ronnie was 297 pounds on about 3% body fat. When you see that, the anabolic, the, uh, the anabolic load required for that, you're talking in the grams of gear per week. Because all you're focused on is building muscle mass. And it's better to take too much gear than too little. Obviously not from a longevity perspective, but from a muscle building perspective. Boxers need something different. So boxing needs a combination of substances to do different things. There's recovery. 
there's re, you know, there's there's physical and mental recovery. There's rebuilding the muscle. There's what you do when you're exercising. So being more efficient at drawing down on nutrients, converting those nutrients, and getting rid of the waste products. All of these things. And so you don't need a lot in terms of steroids, actually. You could probably go into what they call the athletic dose. You could probably be on about 300 milligrams of tests, and that would be valuable to most athletes, in fact, um, more than valuable. And then what you're looking for then is smaller doses of different compounds, your growth hormones, etc. You're looking at those compounds. Some you're looking at legit compounds, right? So things that will just help you with your choline cycling, you know, your B12 supplementation. There's other stuff you can do that will benefit you. So it's not like, you know, like boxes are the equivalent of breaking bad right now. It's not that. It's they're taking things to aid performance, aid recovery, to survive training camps that if you and, if you and I try to do what they do for 12 weeks, our bodies would break down. And that tells you that their bodies break down. And so how do you manage that downside risk? Um, definitely not tuna and noodles. Moving carefully on to Coach Kev. I'm sure lawyers will be listening to that last response. So Coach Kev asks, I'll summarize it. With, with the new requirements for coaching seemingly moving towards demonstrable experience within boxing, should there be a requirement for people to have had, I don't know, five amateur bouts in order to qualify as a pro trainer? Uh, so the question wasn't clear. So I don't know if you need five bouts to now get your, your amateur credentials or if it's that you needed five bouts to get your pro. But let's just sort of look at them together. It's not necessarily about what you did in the ring because... They're two completely different skill sets. The ability to coach is really about the ability to communicate and inspire. The ability to box is simply your, your ability to retain technical excellence under extreme pressure in the ring. Two completely different things. And when you, when you, when you listen to people talk, they'll tell you, you need to know what it's like to do this, you need to know what it's like to do that. And they're kind of right, but here's the problem. Does that mean that, let me think of an example. Does that mean Joe Gallagher can't take someone into a world title fight because Joe Gallagher's never boxed for a world title? Of course it doesn't. That'd be absolutely absurd, right? Derek James isn't a good trainer because he, he didn't fight for multiple world titles in his career. It's absurd. So we, we can't talk in terms of you have to know what it's like because there's a lot of stuff that people in boxing don't know what it's like. What you have to be able to do is prepare someone to fight. And there are guys who have taken their kids from zero to elite champions, having never boxed themselves. But they figured it out. Richard Williams taught his kids to play tennis, Serena and Venus to play tennis, having not played tennis himself. So it's the ability to impart what you know and get someone to execute that successfully under the most extreme stress and I do think you need something that says, I've been hit in the face before. In, in, in a challenging environment, I've been hit in the face repeatedly. And here's why that's important. You need to know that some shit doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Tippy-tap pads don't work. 
hitting the bag three times, taking 15 seconds off doesn't work. And you've got to know these things because you have to have been, you know, slapped about a bit. I only know what I know about boxing because I've had this shit beating out of me a few times. And I learned the hard way. You know, and I can't pretend otherwise. I learned the hard way that there's just things that are very hard to do. It is very hard to be in a ring with somebody trying to hit you and you keep your hands down. That is very, very hard. It's very hard to, to switch from orthodox to southpaw under pressure. Very, very hard. So you've got to have that understanding. I'm more in favor of what tends to happen at the high levels of rugby coaching. You have to get recommended. Someone has to vouch for you. Someone with a license has to vouch for you. So in the boxing context, say I went for my pro license. Someone like Eddie Lamb would have to vouch for me and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's of that level where he can add to the game. You know, like when Scott Quigg and Anthony Crawley become trainers, Joe just vouches for them and goes, well, you know who they are, but I see them in the gym every day and they're at that level. That's what you need. I think you need recommendations more. The, here's the issue in boxing right now. If you look at most trainers at the pro level, it's people who had money to get gyms. They're not necessarily the best trainers. They just had enough money to either buy their own gym or they've got enough money to rent. Yeah, let that sink in. Most people who train, train because they have facilities, not because they have ability. They just have facilities. That's why British boxing is an absolute mess. It's not, I don't think the, the fight experience wouldn't solve that. Because ultimately these guys own the gyms, so they can do what they want. But yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like there to be more scrutiny on who gets, who gets to hold the lanyard. I think at the moment, anyone can, but then it's been the same with just fighters in general. Anyone can just show up, you know, pass the interview and then be given a license. Coach Kev also asks, <laughs> I like this one, which boxers' lives would make an interesting film or book? Um, so one close to me, because I know some of the stories and I was around at the time that some of them happened, Richard Towers. Yeah. I, if you've listened to the Tristics and interviews, every word is true. That would be... That would be a story because Sheffield from 2000 to like 2002, 2003 was so wild. And like you had to be a different kind of beast to maintain a reputation in that city. So that'd be a good story. Dennis Andrews, a name I mention a lot because it's rare that we talk about British WBC champions. And he did it the hard way. The real Hard, hard way. Yeah. Dennis Andrews now, like you take a prime Dennis Andrews now, you, you drop him into the light heavyweight picture. I mean, he, he's pushing guys like Baturbiev to their limits. Just a hard, hard man. I've met him a couple of times. Just a hard man. But I'd love that full Dennis Andrews story. Mike McCullum would be another one. Um... You know, because you know, both guys have spent time in the Kronk, so that would be fascinating. Manny Stewart as well. That'd be a hell of a story. Uh, Roberto Duran, I think they've already done that one. 
who else would have an interesting story? David Hay would have a hell of a story, by the way. <laughs> that would be a really good one. Uh, but that's more for a film. Uh, who else has got an interesting story? Put Joe G in there. You know, I think there was a Phil Martin documentary, and I think that feels like a part one of Manchester Boxing, but I feel there's a part two that Joe Gallagher is an integral part of, along with um, guys like Billy Graham. So I'd, also interesting story. Uh, is there anyone else I'd want to know about? Well, you know, I think that's probably enough. If you wanted something that would just be absolutely crazy, then probably Prince Nassim Hamid. That'd be a good one as well. Um, a lot of wild times. Johnny Nelson, that would be one for the, for the purists. And then Clifton Mitchell. Like, spend an hour with Clifton, and he'll tell you enough stories where you're like, yeah, there's a film in there somewhere. So I think they would be the ones for me in terms of the ones that would capture my interest the most. Um, you know, feel free to let me know if I've missed out on any who are super interesting, but they're the ones for me. Right, I said I'd get to 30 minutes and then I'd, I'd slide off and do another one. You know, because I don't, I think with these Q&As, you want to just keep them punchy and interesting. So at this point, I want to sign off and say, I hope to see you guys at number two. So feel free to join me at number two, round about now.